Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, May 1st, 2023. On the show today, listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim reminds us of all the times Disney show elements have gone up in flames. And, oh yeah, the news. Let's get started by bringing in the man who's begging the Ziploc company to contact literally anyone in the cereal industry, please. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? God, you have hit upon one of my uh, pet peeves. Why is it that these things are sealed so ridiculously tight? Making all sorts of unfortunate noises in my kitchen as I'm trying to open my box of Honey Nut Cheerios. And it's like, oh, yeah. And the thing is, too, like, have you, have you ever been in a relationship with someone who has a completely different cereal storage philosophy than you? Like, for me, mm-hmm. when I'm... I open up a bag of cereal, I will roll it back down and then sometimes put a clip on it. Mm -hmm. I've been in relationships with people where they actually take scissors and cut the bag like right above where the cereal line is and basically put the entire thing back in the box. I'm like, we we have irreconcilable differences here. We cannot, we can, this, I, this has been great. This, this, like, I can't, I can't know, do this. I, I, I wonder how many times this is cited in court along with the toothpaste from the bottom or toothpaste from the top thing. And it just, Your Honor, I, pre, I present these Cheerios as Exhibit A. There we go. So. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Fury 17 Foolish Mortal, Candy Buttsow, and L. Thiel, and longtime subscribers Grace Vankirk, Dimitri Ravenos, hey Dimitri, Keith Peters, and The Real Teggy. Jim, these are the Disney cast members learning to play the various parts of the water cycle for the upcoming opening of Epcot's Moana, The Journey of Water attraction. They say that precipitation is the part everyone's going to remember, but percolation is the glue that holds the show together. True story. Just our luck, it's gonna be water-soluble glue, right, Len? <laughs> They've thought of everything, Jim. There we go. All right. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, news. Uh, Jim, characters are returning to Pixar Place mm-hmm. in Disney's Hollywood Studios. So we're getting back the Edna Mode experience with characters from The Incredibles. And uh, Jim, this is that little alley that you sort of yeah, pass on the way to Toy Story Land from, yeah. Yeah. And, it, I, and this was, uh, this has been a while since characters have been there, right? Yeah. And, and in fact, a long time ago, Disney spent an awful lot of money to go into the space and in fact changed out, for example, they put in brand new brick along this whole space that was supposed to mimic the brick that was used, the Pixar campus in Emeryville. I mean, they, they right. put a lot of time, a lot of money. I mean, do you remember, for example, way back when when this had the Luxo Junior lamp as a you know it, I want to say that was one of the first electronic figures that had been done as an animatronic, right? And it because uh, we saw an example of this when we walked through DC with Jim Scholl. We did uh, last we did. month, but yeah, but Disney in World in Disney World, Disney put a lot of attention to detail they into did. They this did. particular alley. Yeah, the, there's know, the, a number of folks, for example who would point out that 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 bridge element at the very end of the street was deliberately done in the style of Monsters, Inc. Because back in the day, remember, there was the the monster scream coaster that was supposed to go into one of those sound stages. So I'm happy to see them using the space again. For far too long, it's it's been kind of a ghost town, but it's nice that, you know, the 
in fact, as I understand it, it's the Incredible Characters and Sully from Monsters, Inc. that'll be down right. this away. So, Yeah, and it's good. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, character greetings are popular with almost every demographic. Teens <laughs> kind of think they're too cool for it, but literally every other age group rates character greetings high. And then two, you know, in a, a relatively small park like the studios, every inch of space is important. Mm-hmm. And to have something like this, you know, this alley, uh, not be used, I think, oh, yeah. is sort of a missed opportunity. So yeah, it's good to have characters come back. I agree. I agree. Also, Jim, there's a rumor that D23 might be going away with the current round of Disney mm-hmm. layoffs. Something like a quarter of the staff mm-hmm. of D23 is gone, so it's entirely possible that the remaining folks will have different priorities. I think a deadline, Jim, reported mm-hmm. that the team might be restructured. So Jim, let me ask you this question. In the days of the 24-hour news cycle, what purpose does Disney think D23 serves? This was Disney's affinity organization. You know, the mm. whole notion was on the other side of what happened with the Save Disney movement. The notion mm. was, let's reach out to the fan base and be more involved with these folks. We don't want another situation where they turn on us. So right. uh, the woman that championed this, the head of communications, Zena Muka, she actually went out the door with Bob Iger when he first left the company. And mm-hmm. the fact that the woman who stood behind this and was the real power behind the throne with D23 has been out of the company for two years. And that doesn't bode well. This is an organization that doesn't have a champion. And then the very thing that was supposed to save D23. Did you ever hear the Disney Prime project? Was this the Amazon Prime thing? Yeah. The whole idea was it was going to be the Amazon Prime price point, $139 a year, but it was going to get you D23. It was going to get you Disney Plus. We're going to fold in the Disney, the Disney Streaming Visa service. card. Yeah, Visa card. But that was a that was a Bob Chapek idea, right? Yeah, yeah, and that fell by the wayside. So right now, D twenty three is kind of without someone protecting it, and to be honest, its mission has kind of gotten scrambled. Yeah, so it doesn't have a clearly defined mission. Doesn't have a clearly defined champion. Yeah, at least a quarter of its staff is gone. Yeah, I think if it if it does remain somebody has to figure out what purpose it serves Disney. That's it exactly. And whether it's worth all the effort that they have to go to bringing in stars and it's just hard to get your arms around Disney these days. I mean when you think about mm. just the core Disney things between Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar yeah. and things like the Muppets and that sort of thing. Yeah. Let alone ESPN, ABC and and now 20th Century. I mean there's there's a D23 coming up later this year, right? Is it September? Yeah, and might be a good time to buy a ticket for it. (laughs) All right. Also, uh, Jim, other news. Disney's running a 30% discount at the Galactic Star Cruiser Mm -hmm. for annual pass holders for dates in May, June, and July. Jim, this seems to be the the, sort of the cost or the price point that Disney's landed on for now for the Star Cruiser, like 30% off or roughly $3,400 for two people for two nights. So about $1,700 per person. Where do you think it goes from here, though? This is kind of one of those watch this space situations. Mm. We've heard the story about the reduction in the number of cruises that are being offered. Mm -hmm. And this annual pass holder thing is, I don't know if you saw that this same deal has been offered to Disney visa holders. So there's a number of folks I've spoken with who are associated with this project who are quietly mumbling that I'm getting Disney Institute vibes. 
The people who came over to work on Disney Institute were told, don't worry about this. This is Eisner's baby. We've got five yeah. years to figure out how this works. And within 18 months, they were shutting it down. I mean, that's the thing. They've, they've, cut, to, they've cut the supply by half, mm -hmm. right, for, for certain dates, and then giving 30% off. I mean, that's, that shows you how quickly demand dropped on this. And again, you and I just did this, mm -hmm. right? We did this last month, and we, right. we still have to do a show and talk about this. Maybe mm -hmm. we'll schedule that for, for next week. But for what it is, it's still very good. I think it's just a matter of, number one, communication. Like, you and mm -hmm. I have talked to people Disney cast members, like when we were talking about the, um, the discount that Disney cast members got on, and when we were talking to, to cast, member them, cast members themselves, mm -hmm. some of them would say things like, yeah, but I don't even know what it really is. Like yeah. if a cast member who works in Florida mm -hmm. doesn't know what the Star Cruiser is, that tells me you've got a communication problem. That used to be when you go into a park and you'd, you'd engage with a, a cast member and they'd be the ones that, oh, you have to check out this attraction. You have oh, to yeah, check they, out this they were the evangelists, yeah. But you can't yeah. be an evangelist when you're making minimum wage and it's a $5,000 experience, right? Actually, I think you're really onto something there. If It might be worth it just if you think about how they've reduced the cruise schedule. If they were to set aside mm -hmm. just one cruise per week and pick significant cast members that have high... Uh, interaction guest points, whether it's the folks at mm. the front desk or people who are concierges and that sort of thing, and put them in the Halcyon to then go yeah. back and evangelize the people. I mean, uh, people who are at Disney World who haven't booked a trip on the Galactic Star Cruiser, you know, it's not an impulse buy, but it might be something they'd circle around to on their next vacation. So, yeah, you might be onto something here. Like, if you could mix in some cast members on regular cruises, number one, it allows you to get that critical mass that you kind of need yeah. for some of the big show scenes mm -hmm. in the Star Cruiser. Number two, you're educating your biggest advocates on what the experience actually is. So yeah, that could be a win-win. All right, let's, let's, let's keep an eye on that. I don't know if you saw coming out of the Star Wars celebration in London earlier this month, but they did announce that there is a, a new Ray-based Star Wars film coming. And the storyline of the Halcyon keys very much off of Kylo Ren and Rey. So it's interesting that they're creating a vehicle to put that character front of mind again. You know, of those two characters, I like Rey a lot. And I, I think of Kylo Ren as like emo Anakin. <laughs> it's just not it's just not my favorite character like <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah. yeah that's what they put on the whiteboard when they're writing the movie emo Can anakin <laughs> emo anakin okay all right jim last bit of news the silhouette of mickey mouse will appear on epcot's spaceship earth as part of the disney 100 celebration at walt disney world so jim i gotta say the redo of spaceship earth mm -hmm. is the 50th anniversary gift that keeps on giving our buddy of BioReconstruct has been sharing the images from backstage at Epcot, and they mm -hmm. are moving at speed to dismantle those barges for Harmonious. Where, and again, remember the, the story about the lighting system for yeah. Epcot Spaceship Earth. I mean, it just that was done on a tiny, tiny investment. It has proved, as you mentioned, to yeah. be the huge success coming out of this event. So maybe sometimes it just happens. And Jim, that's I think that's the extent of news that happened in. In Disney World this week, is that it? Say again? <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> there was one other piece of news, mm -hmm. and that's the Disney sued Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. and the Central Florida Tourism Oversight Board. So, Jim, before we get started on the details of the lawsuit, mm -hmm. every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. With the filing of this lawsuit, we have several things 
to congratulate ourselves about Jim mm -hmm. on the May 2nd, 2022 show mm -hmm. that dug into the history of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. And you threw out the name of lawyer Daniel Petrocelli, who among other things had successfully defended the 1818 Time Warner merger against the U.S. Department of Justice. And Jim, I note that Mr. Petrocelli was one of the four litigators who filed Disney's lawsuit on Wednesday. So interesting call there, Jim. Good job. I tried. The other three uh, litigators, John Hacker, who chairs the Supreme Court and appellate litigation practice at the law firm O'Melveny. Alan Schoenfield, who specializes in contract law and commercial disputes. He also clerked for someone named Sonia Sotomayor, whoever that is. Yeah, uh, rings and, a big bell. Yeah, yeah no, I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I don't follow stuff mm -hmm. like that. And then uh, Adam Losey, who specializes in electronic discovery, mm -hmm. who's clerked at both the district and circuit court levels. Jim, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the discovery process is where a lot of the fun is going to happen in this suit. Oh, yes. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Also mm -hmm. on that, that very show, May 2nd, 2022, I said that in the immediate aftermath of the Florida legislature passing a bill to dissolve the Reedy Creek District, that mm -hmm. there was absolutely no way the district would be dissolved because of the bonds, and it wouldn't even be close. Eight months later, the legislature realized they couldn't dissolve the district because of the bonds mm -hmm. and had to change tactics. In June of 2022, we threw out the possibility that the legislature was landing on the idea of just replacing the Board of Supervisors of Reedy Creek, and 10 months later, that's what happened. In January of this year, I got word that attending the Reedy Creek board meetings might be a good idea, and I went to the January 28th board meeting, and Jim, you and I talked about this. This was the one where Disney reconfirmed their ability to build one more theme park, two more water parks, and more than 10,000 additional hotel rooms. And Jim, you and I wondered why, in the year of our Lord 2023, on some random Wednesday in January, Disney felt the need to do that then. And to be fair, I didn't put two and two together on that, but that's on me, because on our March 5th, 2023 episode, we mentioned that Disney was quietly reaching out to the governor's staff to see if they could work things out without further mess. Mm -hmm. And Jim, you and I interpreted this as a message like, don't say I didn't warn you, mm -hmm. but, and this is all speculation because I definitely did not know anything about a meeting that may or may not have happened in a really nice Italian restaurant in Tallahassee. I think the response Disney got back was, no chance, losers. Mm -hmm. And soon after that, we heard about the new developer agreement. And then last week, Jim, mm -hmm. we dove into U.S. contract law and specifically called out U.S. Trust versus New Jersey as the precedent that created a three-part test for how states can nullify contracts to which they're a party. And we pointed out that the legislature's proposed bill, SB 1604, addressed exactly zero of those three parts. And what do we find, Jim? Mm -hmm. On page 63, line 163 of Disney's lawsuit, that's right, U.S. Trust versus New Jersey and the three-part test. Mm -hmm. And listeners, let me say this. Nobody from Disney or even Disney-adjacent people is telling us any of this because they would never do that. But among the tens of thousands of people who listen to this show every week are some very good lawyers from some very well-known companies, many of whom have either worked with or against Disney's legal team over the years. And sometimes these lawyers helpfully weigh in on these topics. Mm -hmm. So what we kind of do is circulate ideas among them like, okay, is this a plausible argument? How would you counter that argument? And how would you counter that counter? And then sometimes, Jim, weird things happen. Like on a random Saturday, your Uber Eats driver meets you at the door, and when you thank them for the milkshake, they take a drag on their cigarette and say, you ever wonder which of the judges in the 11th Circuit are persuaded by originalist arguments in First Amendment cases? It happens, right? Or you're out for a walk. You meet someone with a cute dog, and when you ask what the dog's name is, they say, well, his full name is Ex Parte Young, but everybody calls him Freddie Barkery. 
<laughs> there are hints, Jim. That's all I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> Actually, Freddie Barkery is really the name of a dog that I know, and that's kind of mm-hmm. cool. All right. So Disney's lawsuit is in the Northern District of Florida. I expected the Middle District, but I'm told that when you sue the state, you have to do it in the district in which the state capital resides. Mm-hmm. And that's the Northern District. So I was actually, you and I talked about this earlier this week before it was mm-hmm. filed. And I, was, I thought Middle District, Northern District. Anyway, uh, Disney sued the governor and then individually each member of the Central Florida Tourism Oversight Board. And mm-hmm. that's important for reasons we're going to talk about in a minute. Disney's asking for an injunction to maintain the development agreement and to undo the creation of the Central Florida Tourism Oversight Board. It lists five causes of action in the suit, the legal arguments for Disney's case. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one is contracts clause violation. So Disney leads with this, and everyone I spoke to said this is their strongest argument. And as we said in the last show, the U.S. trust case forms the core of Disney's complaint here. Disney addresses the state's argument that Disney didn't serve notice correctly as pretextual. And here, pretextual means the state doesn't have a strong argument, so it's looking for anything it can use. The second uh, reason is the takings clause violation. So this is a Fifth Amendment argument, which prevents the seizure of private property for public use without just compensation. And that's related to the development agreement since it confers development rights on Disney, which Disney says the state is trying to take away. Then there's a 14th Amendment, a due process clause. So one of the big uh, arguments Disney makes here is that the state hasn't shown a specific public benefit in voiding the contract. And even if it could show, That for parts of the contract, it's almost impossible to say the entire contract needs to be invalidated. And then there are two separate First Amendment arguments that extensively quote both the legislature and the governor saying, we're doing this because Disney said this. The case was assigned to Judge Mark Walker, an Obama appointee. Every one of the lawyers I spoke to said Judge Walker is pretty even-handed. He's sided with the governor on issues ranging from the death penalty to the Individual Freedom Act. However, Judge Walker has already ruled against the governor in a number of First Amendment cases, saying Florida has become a place where the First Amendment allowed rather than prevented the state to limit speech. Here's a quote. Mm -hmm. In the popular television series, Stranger Things, the Upside Down describes a parallel dimension containing a distorted view of our world. Recently, Florida has seemed like a First Amendment upside down. (laughs) <laughs> I love me a That's judge, the judge. knows his pop culture. I, I, okay, there we go. Maybe, maybe not the best venue in which to be defending a First Amendment case. I'm just yeah, saying. Well, okay. All right, so the, the state has 21 days to respond. I'm told uh, that the specific way Disney has phrased its arguments may set up some difficult defense roadblocks even before this case gets to court. So I'm not going to say anything else about it for now. But there seems to be at least one either or situation in the case where the defense has to change course in a way it's not expecting. Mm-hmm. Also, if it gets that far, I'm guessing the discovery process will be not great for some folks on the state side. Mm-hmm. So like Jim, hypothetically, mm-hmm. if there's an email from the state that says, and I'm paraphrasing here, right? Mm-hmm. Even if this is a First Amendment violation, it'll hurt their stock price and we can fundraise off of it. And by the time this gets resolved, we'll hopefully be somewhere else and they can have their stupid district back. Like that would be horrible (laughs) if such an email existed, wouldn't it, Jim? God, that would be bad. (laughs) I'm just saying, have we we mentioned the fact that that one of the lawyers in the... uh, in the case is Adam Lozzi, who specializes in electronic discovery. Yeah. You think that's a coincidence? Just a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, whoever wins, Mm -hmm. uh, there's always the chance of appeal. So the success rate on appeal at the federal level varies. 
but it's generally not higher than one in five. It might be in as low as one in 14. So winning the initial case here is a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, that appeal would go to a three judge panel of the 11th circuit. There's a slim chance that if either side asked for a hearing in front of the full panel on banc, as it's said, uh, it'd be granted, I doubt that. Um, appeals are super hard because you don't get to relitigate the facts. Mm-hmm. You have to say that the law was applied incorrectly and the application of the law affected the outcome. And you have to get a majority of justices to agree to that, mm. which is difficult. From there, uh, an appeal would go to Supreme Court. Jim, if you told me that Disney's suit already contains language to specifically address the leanings of the vast majority of judges in the 11th Circuit, in the Supreme Court, with respect to the Contracts Clause and the 5th and 14th Amendments, I would totally believe that. Mm. So if you look at how the suit was written, it's terse. It has just five really strong arguments. It's not a throw the spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks mm-hmm. approach. And Jim, in an amazing coincidence, that seems to be the approach favored by a majority of justices in the Northern District, the 11th Circuit, and the Supreme Court. Who would have thought, Jim? Who would have thought? It's almost as if most of this filing was sitting in a Dropbox folder for the last six months just being fine-tuned by Disney lawyers. Yeah. Huh. How about that? Can we talk a little bit about the timing, as in they waited till Governor DeSantis was out of the country on an international tour? and So I was uh, in line for a sandwich when this dropped. And again, many of our listeners have Pacer, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a legal filings website, uh, alerts set up mm-hmm. to automatically ping them when, uh, when this case drops. So they think this case dropped at like 11.59 and 45 seconds. And at 11.59 and 50 seconds, my phone started buzzing uh, with you know, people saying, it's happening, right? Yeah. And that was actually 1 a.m. where the governor was. So he got woken up in the middle of the night uh, for this, I'm sure. There's a, some interesting stuff's gonna happen in the next three weeks. This is true. All right, Jim, we have time for one quick listener question. Andy Cecil wrote in, uh, after hearing Jim, you explain Mm -hmm. how fire exits work at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. And Andy said this, so what I'm hearing is that if I want to take the free backstage people pods tour at Kidani, all I have to do is start a fire. (laughs) Andy, that is is exactly what not to do. We didn't say that. Wow. No, Andy, no, bad Andy, bad, (laughs) bad Andy. (laughs) I'm just thinking, do you remember that family at Disney Springs that brought the hibachi in? Hibachi. No, Andy, don't do that. All right, Jim, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, you're going to tell us about the history of Disney's props going up in flames. Okay, let's be honest here, people. All these rising prices lately, they're stressing you out a little bit, aren't they? Mind you, nobody's hitting the panic button. Not yet, anyway. But a lot of folks I know are, well, they're not necessarily looking for ways to economize, but they do want to be smarter when it comes to how they spend their money. Which is why I tell them, if you're looking for ways to cut costs, you really need to check out Rocket Money. Rocket Money is the personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and then helps you lower your bills all in one place. Here's a little known fact. Over 80% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about. And chances are you're one of them. Remember how you signed up for that gaming trial that you then never actually used? Eh? Rocket Money helps you find those forgotten subscriptions so that you can then stop paying for the ones you don't use. What I love about Rocket Money is it helps you manage all of your finances in one place 
and then automatically categorizes your expenses so you can easily track your budget in real time and also get alerted if something looks off. This actually happened just last month when Nancy and I were down in Florida. Something came in that looked kind of fluky financially, but we were able to then deal with this bogus transaction within minutes thanks to Rocket Money. And just so you know, over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. That's rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. One more time, rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Here's a quick question, kids. How much time at a given week do you typically spend on yourself versus the amount of time you devote to helping the other people in your life? I know that's kind of a tricky question to answer because, look, we all want to do right by the other people in our lives, show them that we genuinely care. We also do not want to come across as some sort of self-centered jerk. But at the same time, how do you then strike a balance between the time you need for yourself and the time you want to set aside for others? Because if we spend all of our time giving, well, that can then leave us feeling stretched pretty thin, which can then lead to you feeling overwhelmed and burned out. Look, if that's the sort of headspace you find yourself in these days, therapy can help give you the tools you need to bring your life back into balance. Teach you ways to keep supporting others without leaving yourself and your own personal needs behind. Look, I previously talked on this podcast about the dark, dark place I found myself in following my divorce. And therapy, well, that's what gave me the coping skills I needed to get to the other side of all that. Become a far happier, more productive person. And if that's something you're thinking about maybe doing, seeing if you can become a better version of yourself by starting therapy, well, why not give BetterHelp a try? BetterHelp is entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DisneyDish today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DisneyDish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. All right, Jim, I note that in advance of you coming up with the show notes uh, for today's show, you sent a couple of quick videos from the early 1990s. One of them is concept art for the pitch for Fantasmic. Which was called what before it was Fantasmic? Uh, it was the Imagination River Spectacular. The story that's always been told to me is very late in the game. Michael Eisner was told, you know, we can't actually copyright the name Imagination. So it's like, I'm going to find a different name. Again, something we can put on a t-shirt. These are uh, pastel drawings on black paper to show what this nighttime show would look like. And, and the, the one I'm referencing here uh, has the full-sized Ursula figure out on the river and also a fully realized dragon, the dragon from the Sleeping Beauty, realized there on Tom Sawyer Island. Wow. And then there's a second video uh, that is a, uh, it's an animation test of, it, of the different scenes, right? Yeah, and, and you folks, you can find this uh, if you go on YouTube and type in Fantasmic Dragon Animation Test. 
I want to say Kevin Kidney was kind enough. He actually, the, the Disney designer, uh, worked on this. In fact, it's dated September 1st, 1991, a full eight months before the show debuted at Disneyland. And it shows that at this point, they were going with a, a fully sculpted dragon, not the uh what now what wound up in the show which was basically a dragon head and a you know a mechanical dragon head at the end of a boom lift that then was hidden by uh you know they draped inflammable pieces of, of fabric off of the thing to sort of hide the fact that there's no dragon back here there's just a head did you uh did you do air quotes around the word inflammable when you said it <laughs> that's kind of a crucial part of today's story but yes yes, yes. all right okay all right so speaking of today's story uh We've all by now seen uh, videos uh, from last Saturday where the 10.30 performance of Fantasmic was drawing to a close. Jim, what happened next? It's right after, you know, Mickey says, this is my dream, you know, and, and he's mm -hmm. pulled the sword out. And this is where uh, the dragon on stage starts screaming in agony. And in a very unfortunate bit of timing, this is when flames start to shoot out of the head of the, oh. this 45-foot-tall dragon. And I, I don't know if you've seen the right video, Len, but there's, there's this one video where there's a child that said, is that supposed to be happening? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this, there's this split second where the flames start spreading mm -hmm. and everyone's like, okay, I can't remember, is that part of the show? Yeah. And it, it's, it's no more than like a second, a second and a half, and then it's like, ah! You know? Yeah. Okay. This isn't the first time an animated prop catching on fire has traumatized children at you know, at a Disney theme park. Um, do you remember the Herbie that used to be on Residential Street at Disney Hollywood Studio? I do, but I don't remember anything about flames around it. Let me set the scene here. Okay, you're traveling along Residential Street. You just rolled by the Golden Girls, and of course. Disney has built right next to the Golden Girls house, Vern's house. And, and Vern is that okay. unseen person who's all in all of those Jim Varney, Ernest commercials. But parked at the end of, of Vern's driveway is a Herbie, but it's an animated piece of show equipment. So as the tram arrives, it does a wheelie, it, its tires squeal, it, it hood opens up and you know, like a mouth and the, the, the doors flap like ears, the horn honks, the lights flash, the windshield wipers go back and forth. And if you're on the right side of the tram, you're even getting sprayed by the, uh, Herbie's windshield wiper fluid, which is water, by the way, but it, it works fine for years. Until one day, there's this, I, I want to say it's called Roscoe. When the tires squealed, smoke shot out, but this this was produced by this Roscoe machine that was on the other side of the car. And near as they can figure, that equipment, for some reason, caught fire. And then Herbie became fully engulfed in flames. Um, oh, okay, so this was uh, the actuators that were doing all of these movements on Herbie. Must that's have it. Been and, hydraulic and they were very well-built actuators, Len, oh, because okay. this fully engulfed car as each tram came by, continued to do everything that it was supposed to. Only now, you know, the That's people who were in the tram <laughs> see, you know, Herbie fully engulfed in flames, but his hood is popping open, his his, his doors are flapping, his, his honking, as if he's in agony, like, oh, God, help me! You know, the first group that saw this was probably like, this is the most amazing effect. I don't know how they keep doing it. At least five trams, possibly many as ten trams, rolled by this thing before Reedy Creek got there and, and took care of it. I mean, these are college program kids who are directed the tram. I mean, many of them do not have the history through the animation tour to, to say, 
is this supposed to happen or not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I I don't know. It just, a residential tree got torn down in 2003 to make room for Florida's Lights Motor Action. And then, you know, the whole backlot tour in, in severely truncated form finally went away in, in September of 2014. Um but it's worth noting here, again, remember, Reedy Creek got there, uh, put out the fire, and Disney's very dedicated to, to safety, which, which brings us to our next fire in a park story. And uh, mm. do you remember this one about Seven Dwarfs Mine Train? This would have been in, in 2014? No, I haven't heard any, any of these stories. Oh, okay. Well, all right. So that family coaster opens uh, May of that year. It's the, very, it's the final piece of the new Fantasyland project which effectively doubled the size of the Magic Kingdom's most popular land, going from 10 acres to 21 acres. And, but the show building that contains the 2,000 feet of track for Seven Dwarfs Mine Train is right in the middle of fantasy, a new fantasy land, which made it difficult from a horticultural point of view. I mean, you're just it, it's one of these things, getting people in and out to work on it. So they made a decision very early on that, like, all right, Let's mostly make the stuff, particularly that it's higher up on the show building. Let's uh-huh. let's go with faux, let's go with faux grass, let's go with faux trees, and the stuff that's literally down at ground level will deal with that. But the other stuff, you know, will sure. only do on a, a half to basis. You know, which it's all so, it's all artificial. It's plastic it's all or artificial. metal or whatever. Okay, all right, fair. Five months after it opens, uh, November of two thousand fourteen. It's right after uh, Wishes has completed exploding the skies over the Magic Kingdom. And uh-huh. supposedly one stray smoldering fireworks shell falls out of the sky, lands on the roof of the building, lands in a clump of artificial grass, which kind of surprised me, Len, is flammable. Um, yeah, and surprising. as a direct result, a, a small fire breaks out. And... and very small fire. I can, in fact, if you Google uh, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train Fire, you can see dozens of, of images of you know, the fire on the top of this building. What, what they typically don't show you is that Reedy Tree gets there within minutes, puts out the fire, mm-hmm. they inspect, and within an hour, a Seven Dwarfs Mine Train is up and running again. So, you know, oh, I mean, that's, that's how sense, small yeah. this fire was. But if you were paying attention that night to the nightly news, just like what just happened with the dragon at Fantasma, you know, it, 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 there were all these videos on, on your nightly news about fire, seven dwarfs, mine train. Blah, blah, blah. So, Jim, I remember Laurel and I one time were staying at the Polynesian bungalows for one night, and mm-hmm. we were filming, I think it was a fireworks preview of something. And mm-hmm. it looked like during the fireworks testing something caught on fire because the test stopped you could see like flickering and then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden to the left of the magic kingdom you could Mm -hmm. see headlights of cars in the park (laughs) and you're like that is generally not a part of the show and so i think i think this has happened a couple of times all right Along the rooftops around uh, Cinderella Castle on either side in in Fantasyland, there's a discrete sprinkler system that kicks on, Mm. I want to say 10 to 15 minutes before each of the, you know, when the fireworks show was displayed. And it it just sort of, it dampens the rooftop. So so the notion is that even if a fireworks show were to come down out of the sky, and remember, these are no longer propellant-driven fireworks. They're air-launched, but they still, the paper that surrounds the fireworks, that setting thing can still be smoldering. 
But if it lands on a, right, a wet rooftop, it, there's nothing to catch fire to, which is, again, kind of surprising about what oh. happened with Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. And in fact, if there's uh, some Disney World cast members out there, then I would love it if you could confirm whether or not they have that same sprinkler system on the roof of that building. But um, Okay, so we were talking fire prevention, which brings me to, honestly, one of my favorite Disney stories of, of all time. And it starts off... It's the late winter, early spring of 1967, and the fire chief of the city of Anaheim is being given a courtesy walkthrough of the soon-to-open Pirates of the Caribbean. And they finally get to the room where it's the city ablaze. But here's the thing. The, the Anaheim uh, fire chief walks into this room, looks at, at what's going on, and says, look, you guys need a kill switch in here that mm -hmm. automatically shuts down every one of these fire effects because, you know, God forbid that a fire ever breaks out in this room. I don't want my guys in here putting out fake fire. You know. Oh, I, valid point, valid point. Oh, okay, so now we, we jump ahead just three months. And it, it turns out the, the fire chief's comment, very prescient, because a fire breaks out in the room where the city is ablaze. In an investigation later, what was determined that, that there had to be somebody in one of the bateaux that are floating through the show scene who then flicked a lit cigarette. And, and in fact, I can tell you the exact figure he threw it at. It, 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 if you've been through that room and the ride, there's a pirate uh, animatronic figure who's sort of dangling off of a light post. He's got a bottle in one hand. He's one of the guys who's singing Yo-Ho. But Lit Cigarette goes into this guy's costume, which catches fire. Pirates of the Caribbean has only been open for three months at this point. And so everybody oh, okay. who's riding on this thing has never seen it before. And so they get into the room of that's on fire, and their boat floats past a guy, you know, an amateur figure who's really on fire. And they never, not a one of them, when they get it back to the load on load station, says something to the effect of, you know, uh, there's a fire, actual fire going on. They just. Again, how do you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. wow, that was a really good fire effect. Very realistic. They didn't find out about this till that night, where after the attraction had closed, there was the one member manager for the attraction who floated through in a boat and was noting okay you know the, the, <laughs> we need to let maintenance know about that light being out and and get you yeah. know the, the clamp crew in here because somebody threw a box of popcorn over there and <gasps> that figure is melted and burned <laughs> <laughs> only then did they well i guess we gotta fix that but disney really dodged a bullet that day i mean think about it if that, that one figure had managed to set another piece of the show set or that sort of thing on fire. Oh, yeah, I mean, it would have spread. Know, that, yeah, that could have been really bad. Yeah, well, uh, but that's also bringing us back to this past Saturday night, that the, the way the, the Murphy, uh, and we'll get to why his name is Murphy in a moment, uh, the, mm -hmm. the dragon figure works at that moment in the scene is there's this petroleum uh, derivative. It's called isopar. And... That's what shot out of Murphy's mouth at high pressure. But if the wind had been blowing in a different direction, when the, the figure caught fire and that fuel began to leak, if it had begun to splatter back onto the cider mill just behind the stage there on Thomas Hose Island for Fantasmic, I mean, that's where the stage managers and the technicians and all that that run the show were located. I oh, mean, yeah, that would have that been bad, yeah. Could have been really, really, really bad. 
uh, we need now to, to talk a, a bit about that nickname, Murphy. And as we talked about at, at the top of the segment, you, you can go and see what they really wanted to do with the dragon figure, with Phantasmic, back in 91, 92. But, but frankly, the money ran out, and they ended up with just this make good of the uh, mechanical head on a boom lift that would go up mm-hmm. 40 feet. And all of the ads, the commercials, the billboards, the uh, even the merchandise for uh, Phantasmic in its opening year showed... Mickey dressed as a sorcerer's Mickey outfit, battling a full-size dragon. And wow. that kind of dangled over the show for years. The effect of, you, you tell us we're getting this, but we get this this mechanical yeah. head and a boom lift that's hidden under behind sheets of fabric. So it took them 17 years. But they finally wow. got the company to, you know, they, they convinced these land executives, like, look, we need to upgrade this. You know, we need to finally deliver... And so they they turn to the the geniuses at Garner Holt, and they're going to supersize the dragon. He's going from 40 feet tall to 45 feet tall. He has to fit in a pit that's on the island. And and when he comes on stage, Murphy has 35 seconds to get from the bottom of the pit to fully formed, you know, Mm -hmm. when he's revealed on stage. Okay, more than a foot a second, yeah. This involves two pieces, a 23-foot-tall body and then a 22-foot-tall head and neck section that have to quickly come together to form the fully formed dragon. Never mind the fact that this rig all by itself weighs 18,000 pounds. It's 32 feet wide. And because it's as animated as it is, it takes four computers that are then uh, powering 60 different microprocessors. And which control everything from the flame effect we just explained to the changing the color of his LED uh, eyes. And Disney pulled out the original boom lift driven version of uh, Murphy in March of 2009. And they, they spent all this money announcing the summer phantasmic promotion that would begin in June and would feature this brand new dragon. That didn't happen. The Los Angeles Time on June 12th actually ran a headline that Disney's Dragon debut delayed. And I, I think they could have snuck a few more Ds in there, Lynn. Yeah, I think the, the headline writers live for things like that. There we go. But this is why Murphy wound up the name that he got, as in Murphy's Law, is that everything that could go wrong did go wrong. In fact, they weren't actually installing the, this hugely complex figure till August on Thomas's Island. It made its debut in early September of that same year. Mind you, all was forgiven because when people finally saw it, it's like, whoa, that's worth the wait. Mm-hmm. Still problematic, though. August of the following year, 2010, there was a moment in the show where 35 seconds to come up out of that pit and you know, 20 foot, two foot long head uh, and neck section with the 23 foot tall body. When the light comes up, the dragon has pitched forward to the point that Murphy's nose is now resting on the stage on Tom Sawyer's Island and they have to hit an e-stop on the show. Mm. Hard to say now what actually happened. Disneyland executives insist that the neck mechanics broke. On the other hand, folks I've spoken with at Garner Holt have 
flat out told me it was operator error that somebody hit the start show button before the the neck and and body had fully engaged and it just tipped forward anyway long story short it takes till november that year for murphy to get back into working condition but by the way it's worth noting that disney does have a contingency plan for those moments that Murphy gets stage fright, you know, you know, can't appear in the show. There's actually a version of this nighttime show where that show moment where Mickey battles with, you know, Maleficent, that's all done with animation. They just fire up the water screen and, you know, carry oh. on. Nice. Uh, there are those that say that if Disneyland had just stuck with its original version of Fantasmic, the, the mechanical head on the end of a boom lift, by the way, very same version that you can see today in Walt Disney World's version of Fantasmic, yep. which has been running since October of 1998, and by the way, will be celebrating its 25th anniversary this fall, that would not have happened. But this is not true. In fact, Kevin Kidney, the designer who, who worked on the show and has done a lot of stuff that you love at the Disney parks over the, the past 20 plus years, but he, he tells the story about it's a week before Disneyland's version of Fantasmic opens, uh, and again, that would have been back on May 13th, 1992. So they, they get to the moment where he heads on the boom lift, and you know it's time to hit the fire effect, and they hit the fire effect, and the head actually flies off to the boom lift and clatters to the floor. You know, just blown up. You know, Jim, there's, there's a two-second period where the head is in the air, and everyone's like, oh, wow. <laughs> I wonder if it makes like a metallic boing. Well, there we go. <laughs> and it's like, now, mind you, because we now live in the age of, if you don't have pictures, it didn't happen. This is a story that you will only hear from veteran Disneyland entertainment staffers. But yeah, those that were there that night were like, oh. Mm. oh. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, maybe we need to put a couple more bolts on that thing. <laughs> so <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> And as Len just mentioned from <laughs> standing there watching smoke rise up from the Magic Kingdom, you know, uh, during that fireworks test, this happens more times than Disney would like to admit. But but again, they have this this lovely outfit called the Reedy Creek that can zoom right over and deal with this stuff. So. Yeah, you know, uh, my, my philosophy with entertainment is if something isn't catching on fire regularly, you're not trying hard enough. So, <laughs> all right. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, Jim talks about how Disney's Star of the Day program led to special events like Star Wars Weekend and Super Soap Weekend. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be performing the Billy Ray Cyrus classic Achy Breaky Heart during the 30th annual Line Dance Celebration starting at 8 p.m. on Saturday, May 13th, 2023, at the Concord Mall in beautiful downtown Wilmington, Delaware. Happy birthday, B-Love. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.